You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, reach in your seats in front of you and find John chapter 4 on page 888, not 666. Last week, I shared with those of you who are present that our next book study is going to be the book of Revelation, and I am actually looking forward to that. I know many of you are as well. Somebody said to me before I stood up to preach, showed me the notes and said, we're not in Revelation today, and we're not primarily because of an exercise that I'm going to repeat in second service that I did in first service, and I'm going to ask you, if you started attending Ascend Church beginning in June, sometime beginning in June till now, would you raise your hand? Would you get it up high? You started attending Ascend Church. Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. Uh, And then how about if you have started attending Ascend Church sometime between last September and now, would you raise your hand? Get them up high. Okay, look around you, those who have been coming for longer. Yeah, we can clap for them. Woo! But but there was a reason why you decided to stop by our church and begin attending. There's a reason why you are continuing to do that. And as I shared with the staff at our meeting last week, I looked out and saw about 30%, and that was about the number of hands that were raised, 30% of people who faces I didn't recognize. And they said, you know, Jeff, before you get into Revelation, it might be good for us to revisit who we are as a church. And who we are as a church is a church of mission. We are a missional church. And that mission flows right out of the great commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, declared to his disciples that all authority had been given to him because of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that authority then gave him the right to give instructions to the disciples. And those instructions to them have been intended to continue to be carried out until the end of the age, which is make disciples. Every Christian, every local church is tasked with the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ by being active, by evangelizing, and and, and making sure that those who are saved are baptized as a public profession of their faith. And then it doesn't stop there. It continues by teaching one another to obey and observe and to understand all that Jesus taught. And that's not just the four gospels. It's Genesis to Revelation. And that is the mission of the church. And we say it ascend, that it is seeing lost people saved, saved people matured and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. But how does that actually play out? Well, you saw tense over the last three weeks that highlighted this, but over the next three weeks, we're going to dig into the the biblical foundation for what it means to be a healthy, healthy disciple who worships Christ, walks with him, and works for him. In fact, John MacArthur said that this is the divine sequence. If you want to be a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, this sequence is actually all throughout Scripture. You worship Christ, you walk with him, and you work for him. So this morning, the songs that we've sung, the prayer that I gave, and this study is intended for us to understand what the Bible says about worship. 
worship is going to be modeled by Christ and instructed by Christ in John chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to do something, if you're able and willing, that we saw modeled in other churches that we attended this summer, but I'm going to ask you to stand out of respect for the reading of Scripture. We won't do this every Sunday, but I think it's a good exercise for us to do. So I'm going to read John 4, beginning in verse 1, and if you're not used to standing for this long and you need to tap out, you're welcome to sit down. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can be seated. Perhaps this is a familiar passage to some of you, to others. This is the first time you have heard it read. It's a fascinating study 
It flows out of the context of the Gospel of John in the first three chapters, and so we do not want to miss that context, but this morning we'll be homing in on the concept of worship. And what I want us to see from this passage is what I believe Jesus was pointing this woman toward, and that is that worship, a topic that we typically associate with religious ceremony, is actually so much more than that. In fact, if you look at the big idea of your notes, you'll see that worship is a mindset and an expression of what we value most. Worship is a mindset and an expression of what we value most. It's so much more than a genre of music. It's so much more than a weekly religious event. Worship is a mindset and an expression of what we value most. And so it's important for us to see even in that big idea that there are two aspects to it. One is a mindset. It's a filter that we run everything that we see and experience in life through. It's also an expression of that mindset. And what Jesus is going to do in these 26 verses is he's going to model what an authentic worshiper looks like, but then he's going to actually teach a woman who is just like us, a human being who is experiencing life in this fallen world, who has a finite understanding of divine things. He's going to take this human being just like us and instruct her, and by extension, instruct us how we can actually follow his perfect example. Four ways we can do that. Number one, center during challenges. Center during challenges. Look at how Jesus responded to growing challenges in his life. Now just consider the context of the Gospel of John, the first three chapters. In chapter one, Jesus had assembled his disciples. Chapter two, he had performed his first recorded miracle in the wedding feast at Cana. Chapter 2, he had also confronted the people selling things and bartering in the temple precincts by actually showing that his father's house was intended to be a place of worship. And instead of reducing his followers, that actually led to an increasing of the crowds who followed him. He was face to face with the teacher of Israel, the gospel of John says in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. And it seems like everything that Jesus is doing is gold. It seems like everything that Jesus touches in his ministry up to this point is just growing the crowds, growing the crowds, increasing his popularity. In fact, the most famous prophet of Jesus' day, none other than John the Baptist, in chapter 2 said, Jesus must increase I, John the Baptist, must decrease. Everything seems to be going well. You ever had a time in your life where that seems to be the case? It just seems like everything is going your way. Doesn't it seem like that's usually when the storms come? Look at verse 1. Now, when when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea. Why? Because he knew the Pharisees were now paying attention to him. He knew that that was going to lead to ministry and career and relational conflict. 
He makes his way, if you follow the map, if you consider where Jesus was and where he was headed, he left Judea, which is down in the southwest area of Israel, and he was headed to Galilee, which is the region on the north side of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee. But if you bridge back to the historical context, you'll see something interesting here. It says that Jesus went through Samaria. That was unexpected for people of Jewish ethnicity in Jesus' day. The Samaritans were an interesting group of people. When the nation of Assyria, hundreds of years before this, had taken Israel and defeated them, they took the majority of the Israelites back to Assyria. And they left the poorest and the weakest of the Jews in Israel and sent and repopulated that area of the land with captives from other countries. And so those captives came back to Israel, came to Israel, and what they brought with them is their gods and their worship practices. And so as the poor Jews and the captives from other nations came together, they started marrying one another. And those blended marriages also blended religion. And so the Samaritans had partial Yahweh worship, partial worship of the God of Israel, partial following of the Mosaic law, but then they blended it with pagan religions. And so as these generations multiplied, so did the consistency of their culture, and so the rest of the Jews started viewing the Samaritans with disdain, started viewing them as unclean, In fact, verse 9, John says that Jews had no dealings with Israel or with Samaritans. And so what was typical in Jesus' day is that Jews, in order to get from Judea to Galilee, would actually take a long route. But Jesus goes through Samaria, finds himself right in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of the day. It says in verse 5, he came to Samaria called Sychar, near the well, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It says Jesus was wearied from his journey, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus is beginning to experience in this moment tension from outside from his ministry. He's experiencing in this moment physical exhaustion. He's experiencing in this moment social awkwardness. There is a challenge that Jesus is experiencing in this story. Life is filled with challenges, isn't it? Sally and I this November will celebrate 24 years of marriage. Those 24 years have experienced their share of challenges. Now, I know as I say that, 24 years, some of you, I'm looking out, and you're like, you guys are such babies. Others of you are like, wow, you guys are so old. You never say that, but you're thinking it. But then there might be others of you who are married, and you think, we will never get to 24 years. The person you look at next to you when you go home doesn't seem to be the same person that stood next to you at the altar. Seems like your marriage is filled with conflict after conflict, and you're ready to tap out. 
The fact is, beloved, is that it is the times of our lives that are most challenging that reveal what we most value. We found that in marriage, as we've experienced life changes, as we've experienced barrenness and then having kids and then a miscarriage, as we've experienced losing jobs and moving across the country, as we've experienced career changes and seasons of extreme stress. We have experienced our share of challenges, but what we're realizing after 24 years is that it's important for a healthy marriage to be centered. First of all, centered on each other. Centered on each other looks like trust. It looks like intimacy. Which, beloved, listen, intimacy is so much more than physical intimacy. Intimacy that the Bible talks about in marriage is a knowledge of one another. It's a knowing of one another by looking at them and actually seeing them. It's by talking to them and listening to them to seek to understand before you seek to defend or seek to fix. It is a a knowledge that centers on the value of the treasure of the spouse that God has given you. See, when you do that and then your spouse actually responds to you in a way that you wish they didn't, When your spouse doesn't deliver to you what you think they should be delivering to you, then what happens is you actually are seeing them for who they are, being the treasure that God has put in your life, the resource that God is intending to help you be sanctified and to become more like Jesus Christ. And you begin to center in on the biblical understanding of who that person is in your marriage. And after 24 years, we are so imperfect, but we're growing in that. But it's more than just a centering on your spouse. It's actually a centering on, and this is what Jesus models here, a centering on God, on our relationship with him. It's a centering on seeing your spouse as God sees them, seeing your marriage relationship and life as God sees them, seeing the challenges that are coming into your life the way God sees them and for his purposes that he is entrusting them to you. Jesus, in the middle of growing challenges of his ministry, was centered. And how can we see that? Well, look at verse 4. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. For the Jews who would have been reading the Gospel of John, this would have been absurd. Even in the day that the Gospel of John was written, it was still culturally unacceptable to go through Samaria. So for Jesus, the rabbi, the Messiah, to have to go, the the literal translation of the, the, the original language is it was necessary for him to go through. This is opposite of what the readers and the people of John's and Jesus' day would have expected. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? The reason for it can be seen as Jesus looks at his ministry. Chapter 2, verse 16, the temple was his father's house. Chapter 12, verse 28, he wanted his father to be glorified. Jesus was driven by making his father famous. He was motivated not by his own popularity, but by the value that he placed on his father, making sure that whatever his father wanted, even if it meant he was to go through challenges, he would go through them. And he did so as an authentic worshiper because he was centered, not on his relationship with his disciples, 
but on his relationship with God. So let me give you three ways that you and I can cultivate this, that we can be centered like Christ in order to make sure that we are worshiping even in times of challenges. Number one, grow in your intimacy with God. Grow in your intimacy with God. If you were here with the, for the marriage conference with Dave Harvey, Dave said something that was just fascinating. He, he gave what I believe to be the best message on physical intimacy I've ever heard. And he spent an extended time talking about how when the Bible says that a, a spouse knew their spouse in physical intimacy, that was intentional. That physical intimacy and good, healthy physical intimacy flows out of an experiential knowledge of one another, an understanding of one another. That when I see my wife, I don't see a reflection of myself. I actually see her for who she is, an image bearer, a follower of Christ, a person in process, a sinner, just like every other human being who's been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And even in this exercise right now, do you see how if I come home and she doesn't deliver what I think she should be delivering me, I I see her differently. And now it's less of a, I can't believe she did that or I can't believe he did that. Now it's all of a sudden I'm looking at her through the lenses of Christ, through the lenses of the gospel. And the more we get to know the God of the universe, the more we get to know his character, the more we get to see his design for life, the better we will be centered when we experience challenges. But then a second way we can grow in this is that we need to stretch our minds when it comes to our understanding of God. We were doing premarital counseling yesterday for a young couple in our church. And one of the tools that we instructed them on is make sure that they're spending their lives on a regular basis stretching themselves when it comes to their understanding of God. See, I think one of the temptations for those who have been saved for many years, for those who have attended the church for many years, we we get dry and we wonder why we're dry. Well, one of the reasons is because we have not progressed in our understanding of the depths and majesty of God. An example of that was a video that someone sent me this week. It was a video of R.C. Sproul answering a question at one of their conferences. And the question was, why was God's judgment after Adam and Eve sinned so severe? Maybe some of you have seen this. And R.C. Sproul, as he often did, was like, so severe? So severe? That human was made out of the dust of the ground. And the God of the universe gave him one. That's a pretty good R.C. Sproul. (laughs) The God of the universe gave him one command. And he violated that command. And instead of giving him absolute immediate death, he let him live more years of grace. And instead of giving the ultimate penalty to that dust-created man, He gave the ultimate penalty to the serpent, whom the seed of the daughter of or the seed of Eve would bruise his head. Too severe? What's wrong with you people? (laughs) And the point that R.C. Sproul was making is that the God we have often constructed and daily say that we are following is more a God of our 21st century design 
than it is the God of Scripture. Friends, we need to stretch ourselves when it comes to our understanding of God. Be in a church and in Bible studies and reading studies that will stretch you when it comes to God. If all you're doing is reviewing what you already know about God, you will get stuck. You will get dry. And we're about to unpack something in this passage that I'm sure will stretch many of us. We need to grow in our intimacy. We need to stretch our understanding of God. And then number three, remember that this process takes time. This process of growing as a worshiper takes time. This process of increasing the value that we place on God takes time. It is not one sermon. It is not one study. It is not one short season of our life that gets us to where we need to be. It's a lifetime. And the more we are developing patterns of pursuing Christ, the more we're developing patterns of spiritual disciplines, the more we will find ourselves growing toward what Christ is modeling here. But it does take time. So the example that Jesus gives is that when his ministry and life was growing in challenges, growing in career challenges, growing in physical threats, growing in physical weariness, growing in social awkwardness by being there in Samaria, Jesus was centered. Number two, cherish divine convergence. Cherish divine convergence. A convergence is a series of lines that cross at one point. You know, most of us enjoy a predictable life, don't we? And even those of you who say, no, 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 I like change. You're good with change up to a certain point. But when things converge all at once in a way that is unexpected, with pressure points that are unexpected, every one of us, even the strongest of us, can be overwhelmed, can't we? Not Jesus. There were a lot of points converging on his life in this moment. Verse 7, there was a woman. For Jews to speak to a woman in public was unacceptable. For a rabbi to be speaking to a woman in public was unacceptable. In fact, if anybody saw this, it could potentially reduce his impact as a rabbi. Not only was this a woman, but she was a woman from unclean Samaria, John says. She came to draw water, what? The sixth hour, noon, verse 6 says. In the middle of the day, Jesus was wearied. He was probably processing all that was going on in his life, processing that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was baptizing, knew that there was a threat It led him to leave Judea, to head to Galilee. There were points converging on Jesus' life. But instead of him being overwhelmed, he's actually going to worship. He's actually going to cherish divine convergences. Now, how did I get this outline point? I want to try to show that to you from Scripture. Because friends, listen, it does not matter the points that I come up with or even what I'm saying unless I can back it with Scripture and show you from Scripture how I got there. So let me show you, first of all, the divine aspect of this convergence. Remember verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? 
Look down at verse 34. The disciples come back, and they're shocked that he's talking to a woman. Remember, they had gone to the town to get food. And the disciples urged him, verse 31, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. He's talking metaphorically, talking spiritually. Verse 33, the disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? Listen to verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That is what drove Jesus. That is what motivated him. In a moment of convergence where he should have been derailed, where he could have been distracted, in that moment he was energized, he was equipped to be able to do the will of the Father because that's what drove him. Friend, I want to ask you this. Is that what drives you in your career pursuit? Is what drives you to make the decisions that you make in life of what activities to participate in and what relationships you are having and what school you're planning to attend? In the activities that you fill up your calendar with is what drives you to do the will of God. See, when that is your perspective, then you understand this statement that is a difficult one for us human beings to process. But listen to this. Every event of our lives is divinely orchestrated. Every event of our lives is divinely orchestrated. Every event of our lives is divinely orchestrated. Now, don't rush ahead of the statement. Because a statement like this will stretch our human minds. A statement like this wants to immediately evaluate scenarios. And there are a lot of scenarios that might argue against this statement. But let me give you some foundational scriptures. There are many, many more, but I'll ask the team to put these up on the screen. Job 42.2. After 30-some chapters of suffering for Job... God finally answers Job's requests for an audience with God and says, where were you when I created the earth? How do you compare, Job, with my character? And Job's response to that after he shuts his mouth is, I know that your will cannot be thwarted. So whatever your will is in this life will happen. Therefore, anything that happens in this life is God's will. Write down Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21. It is God who changes the seasons. It is God who raises up kings and presidents and Supreme Court justices and senators and governors. And it is God who brings them down. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to his divine will. And then, this is what really stretches us, Acts 2.23, Acts 4.27-28, the sin of betraying Christ, the sin of murdering Christ, was all predestined by the Father. Well, the reason why I highlight this is because we as Christians must stretch our minds to have our conscience captive to Scripture, like Luther said. 
We must stretch our minds to build a foundation of what God's word says. And then based on that foundation, build an understanding of all of the scenarios and applications. I had somebody come up to me in between services and say, okay, wait a minute. If God has ordained all circumstances, then that means when I sin, he's ordained that. Ah, how do I process that? And you process that with scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Human beings can sin in a way that God has ordained and they are responsible. Judas was responsible for his sin. Pilate was responsible for sin. That is the way God has designed this universe to function. Both things can be true at the same time. Our job as human beings is not to wrap our human brains around it, but to have our conscience captive to Scripture and make sure that we're processing it, building upon the foundation of Scripture. So Jesus understood this perfectly. And because of that, he understood that the convergence of all this that was going on in his life, that he was sitting at that moment, at that well, with this woman, at that place, was divinely orchestrated. And because of that, he moved on to cherishing the moment. How do I demonstrate that? Well, look at how he steered the conversation He first asked the woman, give me water. What what he was doing there is he was throwing out a horizontal lure. He was tossing out a horizontal lure. This is what we do in our conversations with people. We toss out a lure or a, a, a topic or a question that begins in the horizontal with the expectation that we are gonna steer it vertical. That's what we do. That's what evangelism is. That's what discipleship is. Yes, let's talk about the Chiefs and talk about Patrick Mahomes, but then let's get to where Saul did in Ecclesiastes that even another Super Bowl won't satisfy. Even a win won't satisfy. We start by the horizontal with the expectation of steering it vertical, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He starts with physical water, but then he steers it to living water. He takes her questions and he steers it vertically. He's focused on a conversation with the woman, even though he himself is thirsty, he's weary, and he's steering everything vertically. Why? Because he cherishes the divine convergence. And he understands that every circumstance of his life, every circumstance of our lives is divinely orchestrated. And so when we experience those, even if they're challenges, even if they're convergences of pain, we recognize that it is divinely orchestrated. Therefore, we cherish it and we worship through it. None of us are there perfectly. That's why the example of Christ is so good, but I'm so grateful that he doesn't stop there. He moves on to instruct this woman and by extension, instructing us, which brings us to number three, cultivate dependent character. Cultivate dependent character. Jesus says to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. See, this is really where Jesus is going deep. And he had divine knowledge of this woman's life. He had never met her as far as we can tell. There's no evidence that any information about her life was horizontally present. But Jesus moves to this woman's ultimate need, and it is to expose her failure. 
He exposes her failure. But friend, how do we usually respond when our failures are exposed? We move to control the narrative, don't we? Think back to the steroid years of baseball. All you have to do is look up on YouTube the responses of Roger Clemens, Andy Pettit, Barry Bonds. All of the evidence shows that they took performance-enhancing drugs, and yet they moved to control the narrative. Oh, I was injured. I didn't know what my trainer was giving me. I misremembered. Whenever we fail, our natural reaction is to control the narrative. And do you know that worship expressions are sometimes the greatest tool we use to control the narrative? There might be someone in this room who is using your presence here in this place to control the narrative of your life, what you want people to see. It's fascinating how we can live one way for six days during the week, but yet attend this event faithfully because we want people to think we're authentic. We want people to think that we are healthy. That's what this woman does. As soon as she is exposed that she has had five husbands and the one that she's living with is not her husband, she moves right to the topic of worship and the expression of worship. She's trying to control the narrative rather than exposing her dependence. Jesus is not going to allow that. He's going to steer her toward the core of what true worship is. Friends, listen, God has given his people a lot of resources to be able to move us past this fleshly controlling of the narrative. Let me give you a few and encourage you to write this down. Studying God's word. I'm not talking about reading God's word. I'm talking about studying it. Actually engaging with what you're reading. Asking questions of the text. Following the model that Jesus gave to the religious leaders to read these words for a purpose, to point them to Christ. Because when we are pointed to Christ through studying God's word, we will be exposed. When the perfection of Christ is on display and his expectations for his followers, we will be exposed. When the gospel is presented to us through the pages of scriptures, we will be exposed, and so will our inability and our desperation. We study the word of God. Another resource that God has given us is prayer. Prayer, and I'm not just saying, thank you, God, for this food, although that's important. I had somebody come up to me in between the services who said, why don't we pray the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis here? It's a valid question. But the Lord's Prayer is not intended to be something that we repeat every day. It's intended to be a model for our prayers. It's intended to give us a framework so that we understand the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to align, first of all, our will and our understanding with the God of the universe to reflect on his character. And then from those lenses to be able to see ourselves and others and life the way he sees them. 
to make sure that any requests that we are making is not our own will, but the will of the Father, to understand that we are sinners in desperate need for repentance. And that model is intended to be a model of desperation for us, and prayer is a resource for that. But also, you can write this down, corporate worship. Corporate worship in the Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 cents. Corporate worship, not limited to an event every week where you sing some songs and you listen to a message. Corporate worship that is intended to stir up good works and love in one another. Intended to encourage, equip, convict one another. That's what corporate worship is. And, And it happens at the Sunday event, but it also happens in small group. It also happens in Bible studies. It also happens when you're serving in kids' ministry. It also happens when you're practicing on Thursday nights for the the worship team. It happens when you sign up for Fall Festival. It's an opportunity for us to think less of ourselves and more of others and to stretch us and to invest in discipleship in one another. Other ones are mutual discipleship, serving, sacrificially and generously giving, and it goes on and on and on. But these tools are given in our lives to cultivate dependent character, to remind us that our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is not in what we drive. Our identity is not in our past sports experiences. Our identity is on our desperate need for Christ. Our identity is in our living out of the gospel in a daily basis. And when that is our mindset, then when our failures are exposed, we don't move to put a face on that we want others to see. We acknowledge our dependence on the gospel. We repent and we return to Christ. That's what Jesus is steering this woman toward. But she is focused on controlling the narrative, saying something that Jesus says, legally what you're saying is true, but biblically it's false. Verses 18 and 19. So Jesus begins to instruct her by the questions that he asks that we as worshipers must cultivate dependent character. But I love this last point, not because of the wording, but because of the content. Number four, coach a deliberate core. I have to tell you, this one I prayed about and I still don't like it, but it's a CDC. Ha, that's funny. (laughs) Coach means to train or instruct, and the core is a reflection on the physical core. Let, Let me unpack this. The woman is still focused on the expressions. She's still focused on the exterior of worship. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So location, that's what's important about worship. So you're a prophet. You say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Which one is it? And Jesus moves beyond that. He moves beyond the biceps. And he gets to the core. He explains to her it is not ultimately about the expression of worship, although that's important. So please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The expression of worship is important, or else there wouldn't be all these commands in Scripture about appropriate expressions of worship. But what he's showing her is that it's only when those expressions are coming out of the proper core that they're valid. 
And so what is the proper core? Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That was quite a statement. It was quite a statement because for generations, the Jews had appropriately been worshiping on the Temple Mount. That was the prescription from the Old Testament that God's people would come together on the feasts and the festival days and worship at the temple of the living God and to do so in a very prescribed manner. And through the years, the Samaritans began to say that it was on the the mountains around Sychar that that is where you were supposed to worship. And there was this huge debate and was going back and forth for generations. But Jesus, in this moment, actually clears the deck and explains what the point of all that is. The point isn't where you worship. It's who you worship and who the worshiper is. And so what Jesus says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. And the knowledge there is intimate, experiential knowledge And then he makes a statement that seems a little confusing, for salvation is from the Jews. What is Jesus saying there? Well, he's actually saying something very important. He's saying something very important, not just to this woman, not just to the readers of the Gospel of John, but also to us as 21st century Christians. Because in this statement, he's actually bringing together redemptive history at the crucial point. Because for generations, God's dealing with humanity had come through one ethnic group. And who was it? The Jews. All of his prophecies, all of his commands, all of his covenant interactions was with the ethnic group called the Jews. But Jesus is making sure that the Samaritan woman, that John's readers and that us understand what the whole point of that was. The whole point of those generations was not about ethnic Israel. It was about the one to whom ethnic Israel pointed. And one of the first down payments of that was in the covenant between God and Abraham. God said, through your offspring will the nations be blessed. Salvation will come through your seed. And his point was not about the ethnicity. His point was about Jesus. That's what Paul says in Galatians. It wasn't about the offsprings, the ethnic people. It was about the offspring, singular, Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is doing here, and the the woman's going to begin to see what he's saying. He says that it is through the Jews that salvation comes, but the hour is coming, Jesus says in verse 23, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is actually bringing it all together at the converging point that is necessary for true worship. And that converging point is not Israel. It's not the Mosaic law. It's not even expressions of worship. The converging point is what the woman begins to see in verse 25. Look at what it says. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. See, this woman was beginning to get it. 
She understood what this man was telling her. This man was telling her. It's not about the location. It's not about the expression. That's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is the core. Physical core is very important. Harvard Medical School says even base activities call on the physical core. In fact, the article that I read was talking about even picking up the phone to dial, typing on your keyboard, all actually interacts with the core. The core is what keeps the pressure from being on your spine more than what it can bear. It transfers energy from the lower half to the upper half and back. A lot of the aches and the pains and the injuries that we experience in our lives can be traced back to a weak core. And that is physically important for us to remember and to be taken care of. But the same is true with worship. If you're going through dry times, if you're coming into the worship center on a Sunday morning and you're just not feeling it and you're just kind of, oh, I don't feel a relationship with my God, it's probably because your core is off. And the core is what Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Friends, no human being on our own can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not possible. No human being can walk through these doors and just flip their own switch and enter into authentic worship. No human being can value God and the things of God above everything else that this Babylon system offers. We cannot do that on our own. The only way we can even begin to do it is when we have received the completed work of Jesus Christ that has transformed us. And so Jesus is pointing this woman to the core. We must be developing our core, which is a dependence on Christ, which is a pursuing of Christ, which is when we study Scripture, we're looking at how does that Scripture point us to Christ Jesus exposed that the religious leaders of his day, in fact, in a chapter after this chapter 4, look over at chapter 5, verse 39. You talk about a group of people who had amazing outward expressions of worship. That, were these, that was these religious leaders, and yet Jesus says you're not authentic. He says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. We study scripture to point us to Christ. We pray to be reminded of our dependence of Christ. We evangelize to point others to Christ. We come together to worship Christ. That is the epicenter. That is the core. 